This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast with Andy Miller. I'm delighted to have you today. And I hope that those of you who have signed up here and are on watching this on YouTube or listening via some podcast platform that you will subscribe. We really want more people to get engaged with this podcast, particularly today. We are so excited to have on somebody who has a great amount of influence in our culture, Phil Cook. Phil, welcome to the podcast. I am thrilled to be here. This is really, really fun. This and, and, and this is a whole new thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We have, this is the very beginning of the More to the Story podcast. We have a couple of ep- episodes coming out now, and it comes at a time in my life when I've made this pivot you know, from active Salvation Army officership to being a soldier. But I, I sense like God's leading me to have a voice still, like not just speaking to the Army, but speaking from perspective and from the experiences he's given me. And I'll blame you, Phil, a little bit on that. Well, you know, I'm I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with people who rethink their career from time to time. I've done it a few times in my my career. And I just think that we need to be open to these moments. God steps in and changes, shifts course and gives us a new, new renewed calling. And so many people just don't respond. And I'm so grateful that you have and you're starting a whole new adventure. So congratulations. Well, thank you for saying so. I it's one of these things I, I didn't see it coming and making a pivot at this point. You know, I'm 41 years old. Is yeah. like, this really what God's calling me to do? And when it when it became clear that that's what God was asking of me as a sixth generation Salvation Army officer, I mean, that's goes back to the 1880s, you know. When, yeah. Uh, that's so amazing. really, Lord, I mean, I think I'm on track with what you want, but it got, got to a place where if I didn't do it, I really felt like I would be disobedient. And that was a hard moment for me to get to, but I trust that God is in this and leave. Tell, tell me about some of your transitions. Like what, what, well, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I look at two types of transitions in our lives. One are major reinventions. And I think they happen about every eight to 10 years, probably for most people. Right. And if you're listening and um, I think we all go through minor revisions and updates and, and rethinking uh, probably every year. Or so I'm constantly figuring out how I can do this better. What do I need to learn? What do I need to know? Who do I need to know to try to really sharpen the tools and make your career a lot more effective and maximize your impact. However, uh, the big reinvention, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it happens internally. You feel like God's calling you in a different direction. Other times it can be imposed. I remember one of the big reinventions I had in my life was at 36 years old, I got fired from my job. I was producing a national television program for a huge organization and a new generation of leadership came in that didn't think my ideas were so great, apparently. And, um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I knew God, I was living in the Midwest and I knew God had called me to Hollywood, but I'm great at rationalizing. I can come up with all kinds of reasons why, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it right now. We had, we were in a good church. We had great schools for our kids. Our friends were there. It was less expensive to live. And I said, you know, God, I know you want me to go to LA and Hollywood, but maybe I could commute. Maybe I could go back and forth. And I think he finally got fed up with me and just fired me. Wow. So I look, I look back, you know, all these years since, and I think yeah. it was the best thing that ever happened. Uh, you know, it was a yeah. shock at the moment, but looking back, it opened up so many doors and it just changed the course of our life. So those are the kind of moments, maybe 10 years later, I had a, another reinvention where I looked around and started seeing my work, my video film work was kind of dated. Right. I learned that Sometimes during periods of great acclaim, when we win awards or we get some recognition, we kind of get stuck in the way we were doing things then. And I'd certainly done that. And so 
I started surrounding myself with people younger than me with new ideas and started really intentionally trying to change the way I look, the, my style of shooting videos and things. And uh, it could, uh, once again, our business took off. So I think being open to those times in your life when God wants to kind of reinvent your life, I think is really, really critical for leaders. Absolutely. It's interesting, like you, you say this, and I remember reading some of that in your book, Jolt. And yeah. that was, that was, I kind of blame, like I said, I blame you in part for some of this, even in my own life is like the optimizations of, of my gifts yeah. and where I'm at in life. That's part of what le led me here. But let me try to get, uh, so you said a few of the things that you do. It's hard to nail down. Like my new job will be, a, um, you know, a, a vice president of academic affairs and professor of theology, but your, your title is, I mean, it's all over the place, like producer, yeah. influencer, social media guru. I mean, what, what would you say you do? What could you well, I'm really passionate about helping Christians use the media more effectively. I'm convinced that one of the reasons Christianity is being marginalized in our culture, why it's being ignored, is because we live in a media-driven culture. I saw a statistic recently that the average person today sees about 10,000 media messages every single day. I saw another statistic that we touch our phones about 2,000 times a day, and we're driven by social media. And unless we can share our story, I told, I was teaching a class the other day, and I, I said, you know, that by population today, the largest country on the planet is Facebook. The question is, who's sending missionaries to that country? Who's planning churches in that country? And I, I just really have a burden to help people understand that when we think of missions, it shouldn't just be geographical boundaries. It should now be also digital boundaries. We need to look at how to reach a country like Facebook or a country like Instagram. How do we go and, and engage with those people? So I'm really passionate. So I started out as a television director. And uh, we, when I got fired and came here to Los Angeles, we launched our company, Cook Media Group, and we produce programs. We just did a, a feature documentary on the rise of Christianity in Asia. Right wow. before the COVID shutdown, we managed to go shoot in India, China, Mongolia, Korea, South Korea, and Japan. And um, so we do those kinds of projects, but we also consult with a lot of churches and ministry organizations, a lot of nonprofits. The, the Salvation Army has been a client of ours. Uh, of course, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and a lot of other organizations. And uh, we just want to help Christians and their organizations use the media more effectively to really tell our story in this media-driven culture. Now, and one of the things about your story that I think is so unique is that early in your career, and maybe even in college, you worked with a pioneer in this field for his day, and that's Oral Roberts. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? Tell, tell us about your, and of course, that means you were all over Twitter with your great basketball team this past year, too. Yeah, they did good, didn't they? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I went to Oral Roberts University back in the early 70s, and uh, that kind of starts to reveal how old I am. And um, I, I got to know Oral really, really well. I got drafted into working on his television show. He had just built a new studio on the campus in Tulsa and uh, would bring in department heads from Hollywood to come out, the director, the art director, the lighting director, some you know key people like that. But then they would hire students often to, to be, you know, in grunt roles. And I started out as a grip, the guy that moves set pieces around. And I graduated to the lighting crew and then the camera crew. And over the years, I just got to do more and more. And then they eventually, uh, I went to, came to LA for a year after college, but realized, man, it was a freelance world at the time. And I realized I better get a job because I was getting married. So they asked me to come back and direct the programs. And I ended up traveling with Oral in countries all over the world and got to know him on a really intimate basis. And, you know, he was quite controversial later in life. 
Uh, there was a lot of pressures on the ministry at the time, but I'll tell you, he he just revolutionized the uh, the idea that Christians could use television effectively. He would have major Hollywood stars. He was on NBC and other networks in prime time. And so it was a great opportunity for me. And I'm not just oral, but learning from the people he brought out from Hollywood. I got to, I was mentored by them. And um, it was a, just an unbelievable opportunity for me. And still, so I just started following that up. And um, I just had a burden to help Christians use media more effectively. And now all these years later, here we are. Wow. It's interesting. Like and God's led you too to work with some of these other leaders. Like you've, you know, worked with Joel yeah. Olstein. I mean, kind of like the key, like mo- most popular or recognized voices in our time. What do you think it is that people don't get about like somebody like Oral Roberts or Joel Olstein or some of these big people that you've worked with, like what is it, what's the misperception that people have? That's a great question. And and we've had the opportunity to go from, you know, Joel to Stephen Furtick to to Craig Rochelle at Life Church in Oklahoma City to Billy Graham. I mean, and now I've most recently been working with Billy's granddaughter, Sissy Graham Lynch, launching a podcast that she does. And um, I just think that one of the misconceptions is it's about ego. Um, it's, it's about getting your message out there. It's funny. Many of the clients we work with, the last thing in the world they want to do is be visible or go on television or launch a big podcast or some kind of an online channel. They, they really, I think that the best are remarkably humble people. And it, 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 we look at them and we think sometimes, that, oh man, they must be driven by this crazy ego. But I think when you really feel God's call to follow up with the Great Commission, you know, the Great Commission is about getting the gospel in front of as many people as possible. It's funny that Paul, the Apostle Paul, really launched the early church using the technology of his time, which was letters. And then Martin Luther in the 1500s used the technology of his time, which was the printing press, to become the best-selling author in the world of of his day. And so I think we'd be foolish not to use the technology that's out there. Certainly, there's a lot of precautions. Social media has a pretty serious downside if you're not careful. However, it's a powerful, powerful tool so that literally anybody could, could reach a vast audience of people with a message of hope. Wow. It's so interesting. Uh, you bring up the issue of pride with these, these folks. And I'll tell you, I've really struggled with that myself and even thinking about this podcast. Like yeah. I had to kind of be muscled into doing it in the first place because, well, <laughs> let's just use it for development. And so uh, as far as like resource development, so we used yeah. it and it brought in money and it was like, that was kind of the guys behind it. But then what happened is that I developed an audience and an audience has come around. I hope the people who are watching this too, like are yeah. interested in the perspective we bring out. I'd say it's kind of like an Orthodox Wesleyan perspective on, on Orthodox Wesleyan worldview. And yeah. what I've heard is like, you know, some people don't even like the, the fact that I use the word Orthodox. Like, oh, so you're Orthodox <laughs> and I'm not, right? And, and so that, yeah. that already creates tension. But there are people who want to hear this perspective that mm-hmm. that I brought and, and uh, whatever that is, like I, I'm a little cautious because like, my own pride in this, I'm praying about it. But at the same time, I'm like, if I don't say this, what's, you know, am, am I being obedient? Like, yeah. God asked, like I've been given it not any, like any of those people you've said, but I have a platform, I have an audience and I have to choose if I want to leverage that with the tools that are available to us. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, for anybody who feels like God's given you a significant calling on your life to share the message out there, I I think 
you know, and some people may feel like their calling is to their family or their friends yeah. or their neighborhood. And that's great. Go do it. Run with that. But if you feel like there's a bigger audience out there to hear your message, I think it's worth putting your toe in the water, experimenting a little with video, a little bit, you know, short videos to become a remarkable tool for marketing these days, sure. uh, social media, those kind of things. It's at least worth experimenting with. And I think it's not really about ego. It's about a desire to get your message in front of as many people as possible, which again, it's the great commission. God's called us to do it. So I think we should. And you balance all this so well with uh, kind of a, a strong theological foundation. People might not know this about you, but you also have a doctorate in theology. Is that correct? I do. I'd say, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's hard to explain, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I have so many ministry clients that I felt like, well, my dad had a PhD in theology. He was a pastor okay. and he had a massive library and I've always been a, he's really taught me to be an avid reader. Okay. And um, I got my master's in communication at the University of Oklahoma. And um, I thought, you know, I can go on and get a PhD in communication, but it gets into modeling and research and all the stuff I'm totally not interested in. But I thought theology, you know what? I've grown up in the church. I went to a Christian university and I thought I want to speak the language of my clients and help and help them understand how to share their message more effectively. So the, the irony of it is I did my doctoral dissertation on the movie Shawshank Redemption. Did and that kind of freaked out my professors. But uh, the point of it was, you know, as Christians, we need to really raise the bar on what we consider a quality film. You know, we, we yeah. so many Christians refuse to watch movies because there's profanity or there's right, maybe right. a sex scene or a violent scenes of violence or the occult or whatever. And a movie like Shawshank Redemption is a powerful, powerful, compelling story of redemption. And, and it has so many of those what we normally consider negative type scenes in it. Schindler's List is another case, you know, a great, powerful movie that has nudity and stuff in it uh, related to the Holocaust. Right. But sometimes we need to go see those. And so I was just trying to get people be a little provocative and get Christians to understand maybe we need to broaden what we engage with in the culture a little bit in order to speak that language a little more effectively. Now, have you published any portion of that dissertation? Or you know what? I, I thought I would write it and do it and turn it into a book. But you know what? Academic yeah. writing, as you know very well, yeah. um, I really went the academic route. And um, I just don't know that that would be a popular book at all. So I just shelved it and along with three or four other book ideas I've had. But um, I, I've been focusing on, on, on other stuff. Maybe I'll come back to it. You never know. I used that in a, uh, something from Shawshank Redemption, a sermon about a month ago. It was um, that great scene where um, he, they, they, he's making the library for yes. and, and he gets a record and he finds this opera music. Yes. Plays, it's like a Mozart aria and he locks the door and he, he closes it and he puts the microphone right on the record player. And then you just see all the people around the prison stopping and just listening to the beauty. And then sure enough, he gets kind of um, pulled away and beaten up and thrown in solitary confinement. And when he comes out, it, the, kind of like the, to me, the, the power is like uh, they, they were worried about him. But he said, I had, I had all these voices. I heard that, that aria the whole time yeah. I was there. And wow. I think the, 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 the power of beauty and what that does to us and stays with us. And I think that that's part of what we're able to do with this message. Like there is something True. to this form, that the form that we put the message in. And, yes. And that then communicates something in itself of God's beauty and what he's calling us to. I love that movie. Yeah. 
Well, I've always, I've always felt that how you share a message is just as important as the message you share. So in other words, what you preach from the pulpit may not work as a film. It may not work as a short video or a social media post. On the other hand, maybe something you post on short on social media that's very effective might not work in other places. So one of my great passions is helping leaders in the Christian world understand that the platforms you use, the vehicle you pick, the way you want to share your message is really just as critical as the message you share, because it has so much to do with how people perceive that message and how they understand it. Fred Craddock says like the thing you have to do, the two moves of a sermon are getting something to say and then figuring out how you're going to say it. Right? Yes. And then like True. one about the other is really problematic. Um, I'm teaching preaching in the fall. So I'm starting to think about like how I'm going to form that class. So like that, that's yeah. a key part. Now tell me, what is it do you think that when with Christians use of media, what is it that we get wrong? What are some of the big mistakes that we make? Well, that's a big question. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, I think the biggest thing is the early pioneers, the people, the Oral Roberts, the Fulton Sheens in the Catholic world, the Billy Grahams, the people that really pioneered media in the thirties and the forties and the fifties, they, they, were really focused on the message. They were very bold. They were innovators, but they weren't television producers or, or radio producers. And so they got the message right, but they didn't get really the vehicle right. They didn't understand how to package that into an effective program that would capture people's attention. And so I think we, we spent the last 20 or 30 years trying to change that, trying to shift, you know, and, and I have to give them credit. I don't criticize them because they were the ones that had the faith to step out and try radio, try television, try films. In fact, it's funny that from about 1840, 98 to about 1914, the church produced more movies than Hollywood did. Um, I was at a church recently in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, right across the river from New York City. And they it was an old historic church built at the turn of the last century. And they were doing some remodeling in the sanctuary and they opened up the wall in the back of the sanctuary. And to their shock, they found out a giant 35 millimeter movie projector that had been just wow. closed up into the wall. And they did some research and found out back in the teens and 20s, every Saturday night, they'd have movie night and invite people from the community over and show a Christian film in the sanctuary. And then um, years later, they decided against it. They decided not to do that. And so they, it was too expensive to pull the projector out. So they just boarded it up. And wow. so early on, these people had were, were great pioneers, but they didn't really understand the medium. They weren't producers and creative people. So right. I think our role today is mix the two. How do we tell a compelling story? But then how do we capture that story in a way that will get people to watch? Most people today, uh, research indicates we're so distracted, we only have about three, uh, around, around four to eight seconds to capture someone's attention. So I always tell pastors, I'm glad you're, you know, in, a, in an eight second world, I'm glad your sermon's anointed. I'm glad the worship is fantastic at your church. But in an eight second world, what's the parking experience like? You know, what does your lobby look like? Who's the first person a new visitor meets when they walk in the door? Because in an eight second world, people are making decisions long before they ever hit the pew and the service starts. We have to be thinking about those first moments, those first se seconds that we engage people because that's becoming really critical. Attention is the capturing attention has become the new currency in this culture today. Wow. Yeah. It's so it, the front door is the website, right? I mean, it is like, absolutely. Maybe, and, maybe, and, maybe and, no, I, I'm just going to, I'm sorry. I got excited about this. Um, oh, I noticed that I noticed it, especially during this COVID shutdown, when churches were shut down and people started live streaming, I was start, I was watching, we we've worked with live streaming for a long, long, long time sure, with our clients sure. long before COVID. So I started watching how churches were doing it. 
And one of the things that was shocked to me is how difficult it was in a lot of churches to find the live stream. Come on, folks. This is your lifeline. The church is shut down. We're trying to connect with people online. And yet I have to click page after page after page just to find your live stream. Let's make it easy. How do you know? Let's make it simple to connect with people. Most people won't give you more than a couple clicks. If they can't find what they're looking for, they'll move on. So I just think it's critical that in this particular culture we live in, I don't like it. But we live in a culture where we have to make it simple. It's not how, you know, we want to reach them anymore. It's how they want to reach us. And we have to make that as easy as possible. It's interesting you say that. And people might, I haven't even said this about you yet. You've been very engaged for the last 10, 15 years with the Salvation Army. Yeah. Um, I I could talk about that for a while, but I want to hit one issue that we have. And I've taken a little heat for it myself is that that issue of the front door of the website. We we have a, not just an identity concern because people know us for what we do in the world. And there's nothing bad about that, right? They know the way we right. serve. They know our stores. They know our kettles. They know we do good in the community. And that's better than a lot of churches' perceptions. But people generally don't know that we are a church. And the truth yes. is, we would like people to come to our churches. I think yeah. I can speak with Ava Sharmi in that regard. So what I realized is I was probably 15 clicks away from somebody actually finding just the time of our church, yeah. right? So we created our own website and we kind of changed our name just from... We use this antiquated French word core, C-O-R-P-S. Right. It's a beautiful image. I'm not not discounting the power of the military metaphor. But at the same time, what happens is like if we want people to cross that threshold, we've got to be accessible to them in a way that they can hear it. So we created like a, a Tampa, TampaSA.org, uh, Tampa right. Salvation Army Church, just to be able to get people in. And we realize that so many Salvation Armies don't have the front door. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'd be curious now, now that's here, that story is kind of making me out to be the person who knows what they're doing. I'm like, I don't, I've messed up a lot uh, <laughs> in our podcast and all these, yep. things. but I'm curious, like your thoughts about the Salvation Army in general, like in our position in the world yeah. and being able to serve as a church, as a social service agency and that type of thing. Well, it's hard to criticize an organization that's been around as long as you guys have. I mean, the Salvation right. Army is really a remarkable global organization. I'm so impressed with what they do. Um, but you're you're also right that, um, you know, in, 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 in the Salvation Army's defense, I would say many of the churches are in very difficult places. They do right. great work in important spots, whether it's the inner city, whether it's remote rural places, they do remarkable work in difficult places. And I have the greatest admiration for that, which means they're not going to get a lot of mega churches. You're not going to get a lot of mega churches in in, in Skid Row in Los Angeles, for instance. Um, However, I do think, and this is a great point, one of these days I want to speak to if if, if the Salvation Army ever does a big pastor's conference with the officers, let me tell you, I want to speak to that group because I just think there's so much they could do that would make their churches much more accessible to people out there and really pique people's interest, uh, you know, capture people's interest about what you're doing. And I think what you call it, how you present it online, all those things are absolutely critically important to making it successful. It's just, you know, it, it, I don't know, it's old school thinkers criticize, old school thinkers criticize me, but I just think that today our job is to make walking in that front door as easy as possible. You know, it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict people. It's up, you know, it's it's up to the Holy Spirit to lead, you know, to convict them and bring them forward. However, it's up to us to get them in the door. 
Right. And right. we need to make it as easy as possible. Stop throwing obstacles and, and, and boundaries in the way of trying to get people to come in and experience what you're doing. So uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about the online thing, and I think COVID-19 taught a lot of pastors just how important this was. I, I have, I've had pastors over the years tell me, you know, Phil, I don't mind live streaming my services, but that's not real ministry. Well, let me tell you, they changed their tune during COVID-19 because suddenly that online live stream service was their lifeline. And I'm also telling pastors, even though we're back in the building, right. this is no time to let up, on, you know, let up on the gas with your right. live stream. Uh, people have gotten comfortable with that. They like engaging it. I discovered that most people are watching two or three live streams on a Sunday, even though they're going to church, they may come home and watch somebody else's live stream. So right. it's just an incredible opportunity for sharing the gospel out there. And I'd love to see us embrace it even more. Well, I appreciate you being willing to challenge this. Like, I, I think I would love to convene that conference to get you there <laughs> to share because there are like some, uh, and, and you clued me into a few people who are speaking into this space. Yeah. Help us think about some of those things, like e even what you said about the parking lot. Like, okay, do we have parking spots reserved for new people? Are we ready for them yeah. when they come? Are we going to help them get past the fears that they have as they walk into the building? Much less like even, even how the uniform is utilized. Yeah. Is that helping or is it hurting? If it's helping, let's use it. Let's find a way to use it. So those are all, all things that are really clear. And what you're saying too with the live stream, the nature of that has been so interesting for us. Like we were moderately ready with our online platform. Um, but what we found is like there were, there were Salvation Armies weren't. And so uh, during shutdown, we were one of the main ones going in our region. But also like it's continued and it's increased our influence to a global audience yeah. That, we, that we still have. Like every Sunday, we have people checking in from different continents. And what's interesting, too, is that we're not often known in the Salvation Army for our tithing. But at the Tampa Salvation Army Church, where we serve, um, the tithing has gone significantly up because wow. in, in this period, like yeah. this really challenged time. So I think, like you said, don't let's not waste this moment. Like we can learn a lot. Yes. You know, it's funny. I, I, I have seen that churches that tended to embrace live streaming, you know, immediately, no question they did the best during the, the COVID shutdown. One pastor, uh, a friend of mine for a long time, he's an African-American pastor here in the South. He, about two months into the shutdown, he called, he called me and said, I got to tell you something, Phil. He said, we have 900 people in our congregation, you know, before the COVID, we would have 900 people show up. He said, we're averaging 30,000 people a week watching my live stream. And he wow. said, 1.5 million people have seen my Easter message. He oh said, God. I feel guilty saying this, but I really have no desire to go back into our building. He said, we're making more of an impact than we've ever made in the history of our church live stream. So he was joking and, you know, fellowship yeah. matters and getting together community matters. However, keep in mind, even when you talk about fellowship and community for anybody under 35 years old. Fellowship, fellowship and community happens online. Yeah. So for this generation, particularly Generation Z, which are in college and in their early 20s right now, um, just being online is a real thing for them. So we, we've just got to start thinking the way they think if we're going to share the gospel in some of those places. Yeah, it's been interesting. Like you have this... Um new book out, Maximizing Your Influence. But it is this, oh, go ahead and show us. Yeah. Yeah. Let me have a moment of self-promotion. Absolutely. It. Yeah. No, there it is. So who published that book? I did. I did. did. You know what? The, the I'll yeah. tell you something, Andrew. The, the publishing world is changing. It's going through the thing that 
the music world went through about 10 years ago. And what, what we've been doing with a lot of our clients is what we call a hybrid model, where we invest in, in the book and um, the, the, you know, the, the profit margin is so much greater. I mean, nowadays, most publishers don't lift a finger to help you promote it, to help you uh, get, you know, advertise or market the book. And so, you know, we can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the other platforms around the world. And so we just decided to do it. This was the first one we of my books I've ever done like this. And yeah. it's been fantastic. You, you can go to people that are, they're listening or watching can go to influencematters.com and see about okay. the book. But it was really written as a, a, a reference book for pastors and Christian leaders to understand how to engage this digital world we live in. And okay. it covers everything from social media and short videos to how to preach to a digital audience that, you know, grew up in the digital generation, how to, how to publish books, just all kinds of things. Any question you might have about ministry today in the digital world this will answer. Even We even have a chapter talking about crisis communications, what happens in today's digital social media world when a crisis happens, what, what happens when you know the pastor runs off of the assistant or a youth director gets a, picked up for drunk driving? Uh, how do you handle, how does the church navigate that? Um, all those questions are answered in the book. And so I wanted to have something, you know, COVID really made me realize pastors need to have something on their desk so that when questions come up about all these areas, they can quickly get an answer. That's like really like a culmination, probably of a lot of your work through the years. It's like, yeah, it is. That's true. That's really true. That's I mean, really actually, true. Now I want to jump jump back to. I hope to get more to the book in a second. But the publishing question is an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, you're saying this as somebody um, who has been published by major evangelical publishers like David C. Cook, Tyndale. I'm not. I, yeah, I forget which, what, who, who your main publishers were. I've been published been by Thomas ne Thomas Nelson, Harper Collins, Baker Books. Uh, I mean, all of them I've dealt with. And 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 I and this is not an indictment against traditional publishers. They're great. I, I I like them. However, the market being what it is today, they're looking for people who will bring a big audience to them. So if you're a pastor of ten thousand people, they're thrilled to do your book. But yeah. if you're somebody like you or me, nay, maybe not so much. And so I've, although I've gotten other books published, uh, they'll pay to publish it, and I get about a buck you know, 50 royalty for every book that's sold. However, with my book, I, I can publish it myself and um, I can publish it for maybe six or $7 a book and I can sell it. It's selling on Amazon right now for $17.99 a book. And so that goes, that's my profit. And it's, it's a whole different world out there. And so if I'm going to have to promote it, if I'm going to have to market it, why not do it? So I've just experimented and, and I've been very pleased and two or three of our clients that we work with have done the same and wow. they like it. And, and the other thing too is, let me say this, the other books I've written, even though I wrote them, the publisher owns the rights to the content. So which right. means if right. I want to do a documentary film based on one of my books, I have to get their permission. If I want to do a movie based on one of my books or a teaching series or a small group resource, I have right. to get their permission. But with this, it's mine 100% and I can do anything I want to at any time with it. So it's just the, the, the overarching thing is the music world completely changed over the last 10 or 15 years. Yes. And now I think we're seeing the same thing in the publishing world. I actually spoke to the National Christian Publishers Association a couple of years ago to their annual conference. And I talked about this very thing. And I think many of them are 
you know, a little bit nervous about the future sure. of publishing. And um, but they're good as long as they've got big superstars out there right. that bring a big audience, and you know, they're happy to do that. But uh, they'll still publish books by major, major speakers and leaders. But um, in my case, I think I would rather even Seth Godin, who's the marketing legend, he yeah. started self-publishing his own books. And so it's just a interesting thing, particularly if you're like me, which my books are going to a you know a particular I, niche. I, I, I'm not publishing books for everybody. Mine are leaders in the Christian space um, who, who are really trying to figure out how to get their message out there in a more compelling way. And so that's a narrow niche. And so I want to really focus on that. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this. I I had two books published and the names of them have been changed. <laughs> the names oh, yeah. Them, right. And, uh, and, and, you know, it, it restricted my audience because it was like, um, and then my father-in-law had a really tough situation where he uh, had it published by the United Methodist publisher. He had a great title talking about John Wesley's theology. It was Mere Wesley, kind of like, wow, it was great. great yeah. Great title. Well, it got changed to this. You'll, you'll love this. Top 10 United Methodist beliefs. Uh, <laughs> boring. <laughs> so, so crazy. Like, okay, they wanted to get a number in there. They thought it could sell, but I'm telling you, like, that's, it's, it's pretty far removed from yeah. what, what, uh, the, author's intention is now i understand like people are better at marketing than other people and that kind of thing but it's so frustrating when you have like, a sentence change or a, a, a whole direction so you can you can own that more i really find that interesting yeah you, you can, can. The book. oh go ahead keep going and i was just gonna say i, I did one book and with a co-writer and my co-writer jonathan bach was is one of the top marketing professionals in hollywood he's the guy the major studios go to with big big movies particularly if they want to reach a Christian audience. And so his expertise is how to market things like movies to the Christian audience. And uh, he co-wrote the book with me. And we were constantly, you know, wanting to talk about advertising campaigns and how we're going to promote this. And the publisher didn't want to hear anything about it. They had their own plan and they weren't even remotely interested in hearing from the guy who has built a career marketing to the Christian audience. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange situation out there. They're, they're good people. They, they, it was just a total different approach. And um, so you're, you're right though. We changed that. They wanted to change the title. They wanted to change the cover design. They wanted to change a lot of things. And so I just felt like with this, I could do it the way I wanted it. And it's funny the it's just really, really taken off and pastors and ministry leaders out there really love it. And so it makes me feel like maybe we did something right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Now, one of the things you talk about in there is attack culture, like the Christian attack culture. Yeah. Have cancel culture. And that's obviously a hot button topic. Topic, But tell us a little bit about how you're encouraging people to think about that. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I did a teaching this morning to 300 members of Alpha. You know, Alpha oh, is yeah. The, yeah. the, you know, a, a program helping non-believers get engaged with Christ and kind of that first step for a lot of people that aren't Christians. And it's, it's it, it was launched out of London and it's a global organization right now. And I spoke this morning, early this morning to 300 of their leaders on cancel culture. What happens when cancel culture comes after you? Wow. And um, it's a significant thing. We live in this world today where you know, the free flow of ideas is really discouraged. Uh, people feel like if you don't, if you're, you have a message that I don't want to hear, it could be hurtful to me. And so, you know, it's not that I don't want to listen. It's you shouldn't be allowed to say it. Right. And that's just so, so completely different from anything we've ever done in our lifetime. And so I, I think that although it's mostly been in academia so far, it's mostly been political so far. Um, I think we're going to see it come to the church. And I think eventually it's just a natural way of things. Obviously, if you believe in what the Bible says about, 
your lifestyle, your marriage, and so many other things, we're going to get attacked. And I think as a Christian leaders, we need to understand that that's going to happen. But I think there are ways we can live our life that will help us really mitigate that. Because if it comes to the point where it really damages the cause and what we're doing, I think it's going to be terrible. But one of the things I talked about this morning was don't get obsessed by the critics focus on the mission. You know, what God's called you to do. Don't, there's a great phrase out there. You don't need to defend yourself. You need to define yourself. Um, There's an old phrase about, you know, we don't always have to defend ourselves. Our friends don't need it and our enemies don't care. Uh So sometimes I know pastors who have gotten so obsessed about a few critics that it's really crippled their ministry to many, many more thousands of people. So um, I think we just have to put it in perspective, but I also think, and I'll just, I'll say this and shut up. I think that we're reached a point in our culture today where churches and ministry organizations, you know, they, they, they keep an attorney on retainer for legal advice. They keep an accountant on retainer off, often for accounting advice. I think we're reaching a time in our culture where most churches and ministry organizations should have a communications person on retainer in the same way because navigating these things. And a good example is uh, lawyers are fantastic. I love them. But their goal is to win your case. I, I worked with a pastor once who I knew a pastor once who um, was attacked uh, for totally false reasons. He went to court and his attorney did a brilliant job. He completely won the case. However, in the process, his reputation was completely trashed. And so an attorney's job is not to protect your reputation as much as get you get you off or, or you know win the case. So sometimes also getting advice from a communications professional really can help you because your reputation matters in today's world. And I think that's a key part of what we call branding and positioning is how people view what people think of you is critical. Interesting. Like you're in this, like talking about your critics, it's a it's counterintuitive to some leadership uh, perspectives because some people say that you need to listen and, and really spend time with your critics so you can hear from them. Like, and I've had some critics already of this podcast existence because I'm saying like, I'm coming at this from an Orthodox Wesleyan right. uh, perspective. Like, well, who are you to say there's such a thing as orthodoxy, right? Like, and so there's like those type of challenges. And, uh, but, but as people critique me, I want to listen and learn from that. But I tell you, they can dominate my mind. I have a hard time balancing oh, yeah. that out. And like in a church, like it's when somebody is willing to speak against something I've done as a leader, well, that's cluing me in to something about them. So I do want to listen. But is that what you're talking about? I mean, when do we listen to our critics? Well, let me tell you something. In, 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 a, in, a, in a, a couple thoughts come to mind, and that is in today's world, we have to remember as leaders that we need to live transparent lives. You know, that river of information that flows into Google is really staggering. You know, that 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 drunk driving arrest you got in college before you were a Christian that you, you, you know, that you thought everybody had forgotten about, guess what? It'll show up in a Google search. I actually had a pastor one time tell me, you know, Phil, it probably it would probably be best if you didn't tell my congregation about my yacht. Huh. I, said, well, I, I said, you're an idiot. Number one, huh. with Google, they can download the title to the yacht. And if they have Google Earth, they can download a satellite photo of the boat sitting at the dock. We just can't hide anymore. So we have to be transparent. And that involves every area of our life. I'm a big believer in a a church or a ministry. Every office should have a window or a glass door or both. I'm just a big believer. I've, I've dealt, I've worked with so many churches and ministries in the wake of a scandal. And one thing I've discovered about particularly sexual related things, whether it's an affair Some people will say, well, if they're going to have an affair, they're going to have an affair. But I've discovered that the vast, vast, vast majority start at work. 
And they start because they were able to close the door and lock it. I'm wow. telling you, you have a giant window in that office. You can't fool around very much. Um, and it really helps eliminate a lot of that stuff. And so traveling with members of the other opposite sex, you know, many times, right, right, many right. ministries have rules about who you can travel with and how we have a, we have a woman who's our strategist that we, that I travel with sometimes we take different plane flights. We rent wow. different rental cars. We stay wow. in different hotels, even though we're going to the same meeting in the same city, we're just really careful. And I'm not even a ministry leader. I, I'm, I'm just a regular guy, but I just think those things are so important. Um, they're not foolproof, obviously, but I do believe that there's things we can do as leaders that will really help soften or mitigate the criticism we could get out there. And, and, and before I shut up, let me just say that you're right about the obsession over critics. Uh, one of the things I do is whenever I get a critic on social media, if I write, I've got a blog at philcook.com. And when, when I write something provocative and somebody gets upset, first of all, I don't respond right away. I, I step back because it's never good to respond okay. in the heat of the moment. And social media, it's so easy to respond when you're angry and you first read something. But I always step back. I always show it to some people around me to get their advice. But the other thing I do is I look at their following on social media. For instance, a guy about six or eight months ago was very, very critical of something I said on my blog. And um, I checked his followers and he had seven followers. And so I thought it was on Twitter. And I thought, okay, so if I respond to this guy, I will, I will expose my 35,000 followers to this guy. Right. So that would only help him. Right. So right. I just decided why respond at all? And that probably made him more angry. But um, so I, I don't think you should feel, you know, if you get a critic and it's a misunderstanding or it's something that you feel that you could fix, absolutely reach out, absolutely talk to them. However, let me just say this for the leaders listening to this. If you get an unrepentant troll, if you get somebody who's using profanity, who's being sexually explicit, who's just criticizing for the sake of criticizing, don't hesitate to block that person. There is nothing unchristian about that. There's nothing unleader like that. If they're just being a jerk, absolutely. Because remember, the other people posting and following you are seeing those comments. Yeah. So it's better to just delete those, block the guy and move on. I, I just think I would just tell people, all the time. Don't feel badly about doing that. You bring your followers, which is significant, a significant number to that person's critique. You know, that's if, true. If you were absolutely, yeah, I mean, you would absolutely. Be bringing yourself down with, I had, um, when we announced that we were leaving, uh, officership as, uh, you know, we're not leaving the Salvation Army, not leaving Christianity, you know, yes. and, uh, I know it's hard to have people imagine there is, um, <laughs> critique that came and, you know, 99% uh, of it was beautiful and, uh, appreciative and we're praying for you, but there were a couple that came in and it was, it is interesting moment. Like it's hard to interpret what they were saying, but it was critical. But what I found is like the easiest thing to do probably for me, as opposed to giving a, I was tempted to have a nice long response, but did yep. I reach out to the person and ask for a phone call? Like, yeah. and, and this, this wasn't like an unrepentant troll like this. I, I just wanted to understand where they were coming from a little bit. Well, more. let me tell you the genius of what you did, Andrew, the, the okay. genius of what you did was you a reached out to make a, a real human connection, which is always better. It's always better to talk. But the second thing you took the criticism offline by saying, here's my phone number. I'd love to chat with you about this. Right. He's going to call you and stop being critical online where other people can see it. So that's a great tool for a ministry or a church to use. Reach out if, you know, if it could be a, you know, a miscommunication or something they just don't understand. Absolutely. Direct message them. You don't need to give your cell phone on you know, social media necessarily, but direct message the person and, um, and, uh, 
let, let them know, here's my number. I'd love to talk to you about this. Give me a call. And in most cases, that takes them offline. So they're not criticizing you in the public arena where everybody can see it, which makes a big difference. Yeah. Another thing in the book that you talk about, I think is interesting. Now, this is going to make a lot of people in the Salvation Army frustrated. Uh, and uh, not just that, church culture in general. And I'll, uh, it, it is the place of gimmicks. And I'll, I'll have to tell you a story of what I thought about. My dad uh, is a wonderful preacher, was just retired after 43 years of Salvation Army officership. When uh, I think in the 1985 or 86, if the Bloomington, Indiana Salvation Army Corps could get more than 100 people at Sunday school, he, he was, he was going to go in front of all of them. He shaved his mustache off. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's a great story, but, but you're, you have an interesting word about gimmicks in this book. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, these days, a lot of younger pastors in particular are doing, you know, pushing the limits on gimmicks as far as, you know, preaching on sex and marriage and family. I know a pastor that put his bed on top of the, the, the roof of the church and he and his wife stayed in there for a week. Uh, I was, I was in when that happened. I think I know you were talking. I lived in that uh, area. <laughs> others who have done giant, very explicit billboards. Um, oh, I just wow. think that I, I think you have to be careful about how far you go. I'm all for having fun. Let's let's have fun. Let's let's do some cool things. However, when you start cross, crossing the line into gimmicks, you start getting known as the pastor who preached in his boxer shorts, or the pastor who shaved <laughs> his head, or the pastor. You yeah. know, and you really do you really want that to be your legacy? Do you want to be known as the guy that preached the gospel or, you know, led so many people to Christ or pioneered this great work for God? Or do you want to be known as this guy that did this gimmick? And I also think they often backfire. What's happened a number of times in the corporate world out there is trying to be cutesy. A number of organizations have done an ad campaign that pushed the limit, went way over the edge. Right. And it ended up hurting them more than helping them. So, um, and some churches have done the very same thing. So I just urge pastors, get the advice of a number of different people before you launch something, you know, too extravagant. Now, granted the seventies, the eighties, that was the time when gimmicks were pro probably at their peak. People did amazing things. And, uh, but I think we've kind of learned from that now that there is a line we can cross where if we get too crazy, it doesn't really help. So um, that would be my word about gimmicks. Uh, you know, how, absolutely have fun, particularly with kids. You can do stuff with kids, yeah. but um, just, I would be sensitive because it, it can so easily backfire. Yeah. So my dad doesn't get a complete failing grade. No, no. Okay. You know, a mustache is not bad. Had he shaved his head or gotten a tattoo or something, I might've had an issue, but okay, mus okay. mustache is not bad. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay. I'm glad, glad that he's in good shape. Um, it's interesting. Like as we work through this, this period, one thing that you seem to emphasize a lot, and it's almost, it's almost hard because like these things become necessarily talked about but is in this word is almost a buzzword now but authenticity like yeah. you're like i think that that's what's behind what you're saying with gimmicks is like they they have a ring of inauthentic inauthenticity oh man i'm not saying that word right but you get whatever it is we get it yeah yeah i mean that that's part of like we we want to be off and i think that's part of like you know when we weren't we weren't completely ready from a pr production standpoint for covid but you know what we did we did have a phone and we were yeah. able to have a mic a stand and we were able to turn that phone around and we could have a pretty large, large audience following us. And I found like, just like I made that mistake trying to say that word, there's a way that it's helpful for me to go ahead and make a gaffe every now and then. Now, no, not intentionally. I make plenty of them myself, but <laughs> what I think could happen is like that. It seems true. Like it seems real. 
And that yeah. might be like that's emphasis I've heard you talk about. Well, I tell you, particularly for the generation that's around today that grew up in the digital world, um, being real matters and uh, they can detect a fake a mile away. You know, I grew up in a world of TV ads and, and infomercials and all kinds of things. And but this generation really grew up in a world that didn't have a lot of that stuff. In fact, it's funny. My granddaughter is, you know, pretty much has only seen streaming things like Disney Plus and things sure. like that. And we were watching a normal TV channel the other night and she said, uh, Papa, why, why is this lady doing her laundry in the middle of my TV show? I had no concept of what a commercial was. Yeah. And, um, but I think that the, the point is most of my career, uh, all of my career, really, I've been focused on quality. But you can be so good that it feels a little slick and it feels like you're pulling something over on people. So I always, you know, we, we've, we've seen this advent of the moving camera, kind of a jerky little camera. We've seen right. so much being done on, a, on an iPhone. In fact, there's two film festivals now in the country for feature films made shot on iPhones. Really? And so being a little rough around the edges does lend itself to being a little, you're perceived as a little more authentic, a little more real. And I do think that's, that's so important important. Don't try to put on airs. I know pastors that, you know, the minute they, the video starts rolling, they become somebody different. You know, they get a big, right. deep voice. They, <laughs> they, they, you know, get giant in their moves. Um, hey, just sit down, be real. Talk to me like you and I are talking right now. And that's so much more effective than trying to be somebody that you're not. I just think that's really, really critical. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I've, I've taken, taken a fair amount of your time here. I really appreciate all that you've given oh, us. Oh, this is fun. You're great. Uh, I've, I've had you speak at uh, one of our annual events. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, and I appreciate it too, even in that time, my second book came out and you took it and, and you, you use it on your social media. I just appreciate your willingness to engage me through these years. Um, and, the kind of, and, and now I kind of see that influence coming in a new way as I kind of make this pivot in my life. Um, so I really appreciate the way you speak into the evangelical world, but even in, just into my life, it's made a, a big difference for me, Phil. Well, you're very kind. I'm, I'm so excited about this new adventure. And, and um, I'm so glad you're not leaving the army behind, but, but you're moving into this new role with a university and a, a college. And, and so I, I think that's so fantastic. And, and um, I, I'm, I could not be more thrilled for you. I, but probably because I'm on the board here, the Western Territory, and my wife's on the National Salvation Army Board. Um, you know, we're in this deep. And so yeah. we love what the army does, but at the same time, I feel like you're being very, very smart to hear God's call in your life and move to this next level. I think it's really exciting. Well, thanks. It, it, uh, the, the name of this podcast is more to the story. And I'm trying, I, I, I'm still working around like how I get this in this question, but it's kind of like a way to get to the things that make people distinct that maybe you don't tell people about, and you're a pretty open book. So this might not be, be there, but is there more to Phil Cook's story? What, what more would you like people to know about you that you don't normally get to say? Is there more to the story of Phil? Um, I'm a wonderful guy. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, I, I think, first of all, I love that title for the podcast. Okay. Awesome title. I, because I do, I do feel like for most people, there's parts that they never reveal. And um, I, I, probably because I've written my blog for so long, I just throw it out there. And there's not a whole lot hidden about me. Um, that uh, I, I think one of my greatest shortcomings is that I do respond pretty quickly to critics. And so I have to really go out of my way to step back, take a breath, and really ask God how I should deal with this situation. And, and I know a lot of people listening and watching to this, this episode probably are the same way. So I would just encourage you. That is important. I think the other thing that, that might be worth talking about is the fact that I the thing that, that um, 
I think it's kept us going for so many years doing this is I'm just a huge student of life. I, I love the fact that Michelangelo, the greatest artist possibly of all time, at the peak of his career was quoted as saying, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. We've never arrived. I wrote a blog post recently that don't be an expert. The only thing you could be an expert in is something that doesn't change. You could maybe be an expert in ancient Rome or maybe an expert in the old way of doing things. But if you're involved in things today, I'd rather be a beginner. I'm always learning. I'm always looking yeah. at the world as a beginner and trying to learn new things. And I think as a leader, we should all keep that in mind. Absolutely. One last question. What's the one movie that everybody should see? I, I want to hear this from you. Like, okay, you let me give you a couple examples. Um, okay. The Social Dilemma. Have you seen okay. that on Netflix yet? I'm sorry. Um, I, it's I on not. Netflix. It's a documentary okay. called The Social Dilemma. Oh, it's I've about social media and the impact it's having, what makes it work, what drives it. I'll tell you, it will dramatically change your outlook about social media. And it goes back to the, the people they interview. They go all the way back to the guy that invented the like button. Uh, they have people that have been on since the earliest stages. And they, they would say things like, um, you know what? We thought this was going to bring the world together. And we had no idea it would be so polarizing and go where it's gone. We had no idea when we, when we planned this. It's a really insightful documentary called The Social Dilemma. I encourage I would encourage people to see that right away. And um, there's a family film out right now called Blue Miracle on Netflix that I'd encourage people to watch. My, my friend, Darren Mormon, who's a producer here in Hollywood, really strong Christian, just produced it with Dennis Quaid. It's just a family film. It, it's tough. You know, in my book, it's tough to find a film the entire family can watch that's not cheesy or corny. I, I just think yeah, yeah. that, you know what? It's embarrassing when Christians make stuff that just is embarrassing, corny, cheesy. And I think this is an excellent example of a, a movie your whole family could watch and it's really heartwarming and inspiring and it's based on a true story called blue miracle and I, it's on netflix right now i encourage people to go check it out so i you know i'm always watching stuff and and maybe we'll have another episode together and i'll bring a whole list of things for people oh, to that's see. good well i thought people might be interested in, in hearing that for yeah that's great well check those things out well, Phil, thank you so much for your time. It's been a blessing to us. And remember, to our, those who are watching right now, to subscribe, like, make, maybe have a comment. Phil, where, where can people find you on Twitter? My blog at philcook.com is the best. I'm Cook with an E. P-H-I-L-C-O-O-K-E is my blog. I'm at Phil Cook on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, you can Google Phil Cook and I'll come up on Facebook and a bunch of places. So uh, yeah, I, I'm, probably my blog at philcook.com is the heart of what I do. Okay. And you can find everything there. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. God bless. Thank you. I had a great time.